Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 17. And welcome to 2019. I'm still doing work on my total television scrapbook. I finally transcribed my Harvey Siegel interview from 2014, and I'm waiting for an approval by him. And I'm starting to do the final image selection for the book. I have to follow up with Victoria Biggers to see where she's at as well. Today's guest is Troy Howorth. He is a huge movie buff and fan of directors such as Scorsese, Polanski, Herzog, Carpenter, Argento, Bava, Fellini, and others. He has written a number of books about various Italian horror movie directors, and we will be discussing these books and his other interests. Here he is, Troy Howorth. All right, I have Troy Howarth on the line. How are you today? Oh, very good. How about you? Fine. How are you? Uh, I always say that, and then I've already asked you. Uh, <laughs> silly me. Uh, anyway, let's see. You are a self-proclaimed huge movie buff. <laughs> and I'm reading this off of my script here. Uh, actually, you were recommended to me, but I knew about you anyway. Well from Phil Hall, who was a recent yeah. podcast's guest, and yeah. uh, you seem to have a, a huge affinity for like Italian horror films, among other things. Uh, oh, yeah. How did you get interested in that genre, or just in film uh, histor- history in general? Well, um, you know, with when it comes to just movies in general, I suppose I don't really have that sort of seminal moment where I can say that's what made me into a movie buff because I've always been tremendously interested in movies just going back to when I was a child, especially horror films, although uh, when I got into my teenage years, I started to realize that there were other things out there, so <laughs> started to expand beyond that, um, you know, but uh, growing up as a kid in the 80s, um, you know, I, I, my dad put it well one time, he said, you're probably the only kid at school who knows that Mae Clark played the female lead in Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, that's, that's probably true, and, uh, you know, certainly while everybody else was uh, uh, idolizing during that time, people like uh, Schwarzenegger and Stallone, you know, here I was, uh, you know, thinking that Basil Rathbone and uh, Christopher Lee and uh, Vincent Price were as cool as it got, so I guess I was a little bit of a fish out of water in that sense. But with the Italian stuff, um, you know, again, just growing up in the 80s, there were these wonderful sort of late night uh, horror film sort of programs that would come on uh, just regional shows that I can remember watching things like uh, Haunted Hollywood and uh, Chili Theater with uh, Chili Billy Cardilli and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Suspense Theater and Shock Theater and things like these are regional versions uh, of those programs and uh, every now and again you would get some weird offbeat movie that showed up that clearly wasn't quite um what I was accustomed to. I, I, I was too young to understand the whole concept of like dubbing and things like that. So I could just tell something from the soundtracks and things. These movies were a little bit weird. And uh, I, I remember the one that really made a huge impression on me when I was very young was uh, Baron Blood, which is a Mario Bava film. Mm-hmm. And um, there was just something about that movie that stood out and really impressed me. And uh, I 
as I started to investigate more, is seriously into horror movies and trying to get a sense of who the big players were and, and things like that, I discovered that it was directed by a man named Mario Bava and that apparently he'd done a lot of movies like that. So mm-hmm. that intrigued me and just started digging around from there. So that was your first exposure to Mario's films? It wasn't Black Sabbath or anything like that? No, no, it was Baron Blood, which is really kind of a minor Bava film, although it is a good uh, sort of intro movie in a way because it gives you a sense of his extraordinary visual talent and his ability to redeem a a kind of shoddy script with just (laughs) sheer atmospherics. And uh, it it helped, too, probably seeing that one because it was uncommonly well dubbed. Um, Mm -hmm. Alfredo Leone, who produced that film, was insistent that the movie should be shot in English. And... uh, he had uh, English-speaking actors in it, like Joseph Cotton and Elkie Summer, and they actually dubbed their own roles. So mm-hmm. it, it didn't have that alienating quality that you get with some of the other ones. I remember seeing uh, The Whip and the Body for the first time, for example, on, uh, I think it was Commander USA's Groovy Movies, and uh, watching it and thinking, Christopher Lee doesn't sound right. Well, of course, it's not his voice. So that's a slightly <laughs> different kind of experience. Hi, I'm Christopher Lee. No, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, not quite the same. <laughs> Um, now, you said, uh, you named some of the shows that you were seeing some of these films for the first time. That was local to you. You're in Philadelphia, is that correct? Or No, Johnstown. Johnstown, oh. PA, which is uh, referenced in uh, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, if you remember at one point, right. uh, they're flying overhead, and uh, I think it's Peter says, all oh, those rednecks down there are probably enjoying this. That's Johnstown. <laughs> so how far are you? Uh, I know where Pennsylvania is, but uh, I think I've been to the state once. I've been more over into New York. So geography lesson, please. Oh, uh, boy, you've asked a lousy person <laughs> geography lesson. Well, I mean, okay, let's make it easy. Couple- West or east of Pennsylvania? <laughs> <laughs> I am, I'm a couple of hours outside of Pittsburgh, for example, so okay. western PA. Okay, got it. Okay, so I've definitely not been out there because I've been, no. like, on the eastern side. So uh, so did they tend to – well, I'll, I'll give you background on me. So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and the big show there was uh, Creature Features, which originally had Bob Wilkins and then later John Stanley. And they tended, back in the 70s and 80s, to show – the movies as uncut as possible. I think they might have made a couple minor cuts to Night of the Living Dead uh, for excessive gore, but in general, if they had nudity or uh, other types of bloodshed, uh, it was shown. So was that the same case here? So did you see a lot of these Bava films uncut? No. no. Okay. Unfortunately, even something like Baron Blood, which is fairly mild, um, yeah. I remember it had a sequence, big sequences cut from it, um, which I didn't catch up with until I saw it on um, the HBO uh, Thorny MI VHS later on. Even that version was cut from the uh, European one. But uh, no, they they tended any kind of nudity. Anytime things got even remotely sexy, very often things were cut out. It's kind of surprising in hindsight that they cut movies as badly as they did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I know one time uh, Bob Wilkins on Creature Features, this wasn't for time, it was just a bad print. Uh, they were going to show House of the Seven Corpses or some title like that, if I believe. And they had, he said, we can't show that film because they cut two out. They cut two of the corpses out. I don't know if that was a joke or not, but it was basically, you know, that the print that they received at the channel, as KTVU Channel 2 in San Francisco, was so bad that they, they ended up uh, filling time uh, 
with having guest appearances by like uh, Chinese New Year's Dragon and other things because <laughs> this is a live show. They didn't have anything to show, and well, so they funny. showed like little short films and other things in its place, and they managed to get through the show. But uh, yeah, they did show uh, like uh, you know you're familiar, I'm sure, Twins of Evil, the Hammer oh, yes. film. Yeah, they showed that uncut, you know, bare breasts yeah. and everything. But that was in the loosey goosey pre Fox television days uh, because they became a Fox affiliate and uh, <laughs> things like well, that. <laughs> even recently, there's a, a channel we have uh, around here. It's a retro channel called MeTV. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, I think it was MeTV anyway, but I, I, they were running the Vincent Price movie Theater of Blood, mm-hmm. uh, which is a movie I'm very fond of. And uh, of course, if you know that film, it's, it's all about uh, Vincent Price playing a, uh, a, a an actor who's getting revenge on the critics by killing them. <laughs> and I mean, this is one of those movies I've seen so many times I've virtually memorized. So I'm watching it and gets through the end t- uh, the opening titles, and I come to realization they cut the first murder scene out of it, <laughs> which I couldn't <laughs> believe. And uh, you know, this is just within the last year or two, and it's not like that movie is that violence or whatever but whatever reason that the print that they got a hold of had that entire very important first sequence cut uh, wow. that's that's very strange so prior to this baba film uh, i'll get into baba again because i know that's your first book but uh what was your favorite uh studio was it the universal stuff the aip stuff or the uh hammer stuff well, um, you know, again, bearing in mind, I was probably watching a lot of this stuff way, way sooner than I probably should have been. Um, I, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> I, I'll give you an example. My maternal grandmother passed away when I was uh, about two years old, and even she made a comment <laughs> about me liking these movies. Oh, I didn't go uh, that far back. <laughs> I, I, I must have done, because uh, she, she used to say that my mom, uh, you know, screwed me up from birth by watching things like The Omen when she was pregnant with me, so... <laughs> That's, of course, a perfect movie, a Rosemary's Baby, you know, those, those are perfect movies to watch when you're pregnant, so um, I was aware of Hammer and Universal from very, very young age. AIP, I wasn't as aware of until later on. Hammer, for me, when I was very young, was a little too intense. Yeah. Uh, of those movies, I can remember watching uh, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, for example, um, my mom had recorded it off of Chiller Theater for me, and, uh, you know, because it used to run late, and I was just, you know, however young, I was younger than five years old at the time, and so I sat down to watch it, and it was it was scaring me, and I think but in the space of, like, the opening 20 minutes, I asked her to turn it off, like, three times, until <laughs> she finally said, I'm putting it back on, if you have me turn it off again, I'm not putting it back on, so I, I toughed it out for the rest of the movie. Um, so, when I was very, very young, Universal was my go to because those movies um, they enthralled me but they didn't really necessarily scare me too much the Hammer films when I was very young did scare me but I became a huge fan of those later on Right. Okay. <laughs> that's about similar to what I did um, yeah. Then, um, so going to your book uh, so your first book was called uh, what is it here you can say it The Haunted World of Mario Bava now yes. you, you published that twice correct is that the uh, yeah was, well the first time uh, I started working on it um, I don't know how interesting all this is but I'll, I'll go back uh, to when I was in college mm-hmm. um, actually just prior to starting college I'd finished high school and decided to take a year off and during that time I worked 
at a local McDonald's and, you know, pretty much was making not big bucks, but I was making a little bit of money and that, that enabled me to be able to spend money on movies. And that was during the time that I really started to get heavily into Bava and uh, started buying the VHS dupes of like Jap Japanese laser discs um, <laughs> and things like that of a lot of Bava films and then Argento and Fulci and so on. And during that time, I thought, you know, why hasn't anybody written a book about Mario Bava? It just seemed like it was a natural that, that there should be at least one. Well, I had no idea at that time that there was somebody else who was working on a book. I had been working on it for many years. I, I didn't know about that. It was Tim Lucas's um, book that he was working on, but I didn't know that at the time. So I kind of blithely set about writing my own. And uh, I, I'm glad in hindsight I didn't know because if I had known that, I probably wouldn't have done it. But uh, I, I pretty much saw it initially as just going to be like a um, maybe a, a magazine article or even a monograph. And it wasn't until I was in college that a professor of mine said, you know, uh, you've got the makings of a book here. And uh, oh. I found that kind of strange because I didn't see myself as somebody who was going to be writing books, but I figured, okay. And with his help and, and feedback and guidance uh, throughout college, I, I was working on that book and it finally got uh, published through FAB Press in England in 2002. And uh, it did very well and uh, won a few awards. Not that I ever got them, but no. <laughs> it did. The publisher got them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got a lot of good feedback on it. You know, not, inevitably, not everybody liked it, but it seemed like, them, for the most part, people did like it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I wanted to do a revised version for a long time because over time I just, you know, realized I could probably do it a little bit better. And there were other things that I had discovered and wanted to sort of update it. And uh, in 2012, the rights reverted back to me from FAB Press, and uh, I took it to Midnight Marquee, and mm -hmm. uh, they put out a revised and expanded edition, which is funny to say that because if you look at the two volumes side by side, the, the new version looks a hell of a lot thinner than the old <laughs> one. But uh, it is it is revised, and, uh, you know, uh, it, it has new content. But uh, there were some things that had changed in the in the 10 years basically that decade in between and one of them was the availability of the films and so one of the big things was it was no longer necessary to have big long plot synopsis of mm -hmm. things in, in a book anymore which i hate I, I if i if it were up to me it would just be a line or two of plot synopsis but mm -hmm. uh, fab wanted more detail because at that time those movies weren't as easy to see mm -hmm. um so, yeah, there was a certain amount of cutting things out and pasting new things in and everything else, but that's that's the long and the short of it, I guess. That's how it ended up being done twice. Now, I don't know if I'm familiar with the initial edition other than, you know, knowing that it exists. Uh, were there any films when you did the first edition that were just totally elusive at that point just because they weren't on home video and you didn't know how to get access to it? Um, no, fortunately, I was able to see all the films that he directed. Um, in the years since then, I was able to catch up with some things that he had a hand in without credit. But uh, I was able to, to watch all of the uh, major directorial films uh, even back then. Um, it did take a lot of digging around. And uh, <laughs> it, it's it's weird now where here we are. You know, if I think about it, it was about 20-some years ago that I really started working on the book in his first edition so in that time now we have all these uh, blu-ray editions and so forth it's just uh, you know kind of amazing to me that 
so many of these movies are available in very nice editions, whereas you used to have to go through the gray market route and get really kind of crappy VHS copies of them. Right, and I, I know like even initial DVDs of some of the movies said uh, scenes cut still. Uh, is that still the case, or are they finally released virtually uncut? Uh, with Bava, no, I don't think there are any issues with the editions being cut. Uh, there are a couple that could really do with better transfers. I know the Whip in the Body, for example, the um, the version that's available on Blu-ray looks horrible. Uh, it, it's taken from a master that just I don't I don't know why they even accepted it, but um, I'd love to see that redone. And there are a few of his that need to be released yet on Blu-ray. Most of them are available. I can't think of any off the top of my head that are cut. As a matter of fact. Uh, some of the ones that Arrow put out, for example, include both the uh, the Italian original Italian version as well as like the AIP cuts. So you get something like uh, the girl knew too much, which was heavily revised in the U.S. as Evil Eye, or uh, the Three Faces of Fear, which again heavily revised by AIP for uh, Black Sabbath. You get both of those cuts on the same disc. Okay, but I. Wasn't it true that a lot of the times, maybe this is back when it was on tape, is it was just the AIP version, so you would not see the uncut Italian version at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, that was uh, that was kind of uh, mind blowing in itself when I first started digging around and uh, you know trying to write about these films back in the day because. Um, I really wasn't aware of a lot of the variant editions and things like that, so started to uncover that and track down the uh, the Italian versions. It was really really interesting to compare them. That the uh, the Italian versions inevitably were more adult in nature, <laughs> whereas the uh, AIP versions were typically geared towards kids. Right, and. I wasn't aware of that either. I didn't know how prevalent that was in horror movies. I thought, you know, oh, that's just an occasional thing Hammer does or something. And then I found out uh, Amicus had cuts, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, any any studio had cuts when they got to America for whatever reason. Oh, yeah. You know? Well, I remember seeing um, uh, Commander USA's uh, groovy movies. I don't know if you remember that show or not, but it was yeah. on the USA Network in the 80s. And mm-hmm. uh, he ran a few Hammer films, for example. And uh, he ran like Vampire Circus and um, uh, Countess Dracula, for example, and Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, and they were heavily cut. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and only recently, especially Vampire Circus, which is kind of a kinky movie. Yes. <laughs> um, I think it's probably the sexiest movie they ever made, uh, although it's pretty. Uh, it, it, it gets away with some strange things. We'll just put it that way. It's yeah. kind of implicit <laughs> bestiality and things like that in this film. And uh, that was cut down to PG level when really in certain scenes it didn't make any sense at all. Yeah, and I, I, I'm sure that was the way I originally saw it and wasn't terribly impressed. The later Blu-ray actually go, oh, this is a different film. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, well, it makes all the difference. Yeah. And especially, too, uh, when we talk about, like, Bava, it's very, very important to see good prints in the sense of uh, appreciating the artistry and the color. Uh, the use of color in his films is so striking. If you, if you watch a faded version of Blood and Black Lace, for example, it just doesn't play. But if you see it with the full Technicolor effect, it's just absolutely you know, an amazing experience. Okay. Now, you, you did Baba first. Um, was there ever a thought before you uh, did that first book to just do, basically, I think it was your second book where you just kind of covered Italian films in general, you know, horror films in general? Uh, uh, the Jallo films specifically. Well, um, after the Bava book, original, you know, version of the Bava book in 2002, I thought about doing a book on John Carpenter. 
Yeah. And um, I'm still thinking about doing that. It's just, <laughs> I, you know, one of these days I'll get around to it. Every now and again, he sticks his head above ground and says he might make another movie. And <laughs> yeah. So you think, well, maybe I should wait a while. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he looks considerably older than what he is. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. not a very nice thing to say, but it's true. The years have not been kind to him. Um, hopefully he'll be around for another 30, 40 years. But, you know, uh, realistically, he is 70 now. So right. we'll see if he makes anything else. But. I, I had thought about doing that, but they're really at FAB. You know, as grateful as I was to them for publishing my first book, and I am very grateful to them. They weren't terribly encouraging about other projects, and I just kind of, you know, I, I lost an interest for a period of time. And mm. I was doing a lot of reviewing online for different websites like Eccentric Cinema and uh, DVD Maniacs, but. The idea of doing another book didn't really come into focus until after I did the revised Bava book back Got in it, 2000, okay. what, 2013, I guess. So after that, I, I enjoyed doing that so much, I thought about doing this book on Jallo films. I'd been thinking about that for a while. And uh, that became so deadly, so perverse. For those who don't know what the giallo is, it's just basically an Italian thriller, which is very stylized and and Mm -hmm. often rather sleazy. Um, (laughs) They are sort of pulp movies that uh, it's not as much about whodunit as it is how they do it. Uh, There's a lot of emphasis on really colorful uh, murder sequences and things like that in those films. Um, There's a whole wide variety of different Jallo films. Some of them are pretty sleazy and down market. Some of them are actually extraordinarily good, but there's a lot of them. And uh, the idea of sort of trying to put them all together and do an entire series, uh, you know, or, or I shouldn't say entire series, but an entire book devoted to the entire genre uh, came to me. But uh, that ended up becoming a, a three part project because there were so many of them. Mm, okay. <laughs> Um, do you, well, I got so many different questions. So let's go back to Mario Bava for a second. Did you ever get a chance to interview him or meet him in, in your, uh, years of working Bob, on the book? Oh, no, yeah, I, no, no. I was asked, you know, <laughs> just in case. I, know. <laughs> I was only three when he died, so that would have been yeah, awkward. Okay, that's right. You are younger than me, but you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's, people have weird encounters in their life, you know, but yeah, three. Oh, it's true. No, I yeah. would have loved to if anybody that ever, I, if I could have met him, it would have been fascinating because, uh, Unlike a lot of uh, directors, he was a very um, humble and modest man, and if anything, he tended to sort of self-sabotage himself in interviews. Uh, when people took him seriously, he would kind of... You can't picture most directors going into an interview and saying, my work's nothing but bullshit, but he did that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, why, they'd ask him, why do the... You know, the Italians don't like your movies, but the the, uh, the Americans and the French do. Why is that? And they say, well, they don't know any better. Mm-hmm. You know, so... He was just like that, and he didn't take himself seriously. I would love to have met him, but no, unfortunately, uh, of uh, you know the directors I've written about, um, you know, in terms of my books, uh, Fulci uh, passed away, um, you know, right around the time I was getting into his movies. Mm. Um, I am working on a book on Dario Argento. I have not personally met him, but I do uh, have a friend who was able to interview him for me, so I've got an interview with him in the book. So. Um, hopefully someday I'll get the chance to meet him at least. Yes. <laughs> or his daughter, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, let's see. 
there was one other question I had about Mario Bava. Uh, well, I'll come back to it. Okay, so the next book you have, uh, you stayed with Midnight Marquee Publisher after that, right? Because all your books kind of have a similar look. Um, is that correct? Uh, yeah, for the most part. Uh, I have done a couple of other projects with a, a company called WK Books. Okay. Um, they put out uh, a couple of different uh, sort of fanzine type things uh, like uh, Wang's Chop and uh, a magazine called Monster. And I did a book on Klaus Kinski for them called Real Depravities. Okay. And a book on Paul Nashi, the Spanish Horror King. Oh, so those are uh, a different publisher. Beast. Okay, well. Yeah. Well, yeah, the others were all Midnight Marquee, though. I get it. Okay. Uh, we'll talk about those in a second, but was, uh, going back to the uh, Fulci book, um, because you'd mentioned that one, um, how do you feel... Well, I don't know how to ask this. Um, I'll just ask it. It sounds like a dumb question. How does he right. compare to Bava? I mean, it, well, I, I mean, I've seen both films, and they are kind of different, but I wanted to get your take on it. Well, I think we have to understand that when it comes to Italian horror, the, the three kings, as it were, are Mario Bava, Lucio Fulci, and Dario Argento. Yeah. And uh, how people rate them uh, varies wildly. I don't think any one of them is accepted as the you know sort of best of the best uh, more than anybody else. Um, I love all three. I, I do think Bava is the best of them all. Uh, he just had an extraordinary ability to make something out of nothing. Uh, something that recurs throughout his films is the fact that he really only once or twice in his career as a director had decent budgets to work with. So <laughs> a lot of what he did was really accomplished with smoke and mirrors. Uh, there's a lot of trickery in his films that's pretty much invisible because he was so damn good at it. Mm -hmm. um, Fulci was, like Bava, a, what you would call a journeyman director. That, that means that he pretty much did what Whatever was popular at a given time. Um, no harm in that, but it's it's something that uh, means that their filmographies are a little bit more sort of rambling and inconsistent in a way compared to somebody like Argento, who was able to specialize and pretty much write and direct his own films and establish himself as an auteur. Um, Bava did have a strong hand in writing a lot of his films. Fulci was also a writer-director, but again, with Fulci, it was, you know, whatever's popular. When musicals were popular, he did musicals. When comedies were popular, he did comedies, westerns, he did westerns, and so forth. Um, Fulci is a particularly interesting uh, filmmaker for me in the sense that there's just such a strong, passionate quality in his films. And uh, unexpectedly, too, I think a real strong kind of social conscience and a, a kind of a political theme that runs throughout some of his films to do with... Uh, you know, kind of attacking intolerance and uh, the way that outsiders are often mistreated by society. Uh, it's It sounds like you're kind of, you know, uh, intellectual masturbation in a way when you start talking about it, when you think of some of the films that he made. But um, it is there, and there's, again, this very strong, passionate kind of quality that's in his films that... Within a wide variety of different genres, and having watched all of his films that he directed, he did really, really good work in all those genres. Um, you know, he made a couple of really excellent westerns, for example. He did some uh, really good comedies. Just really good work in a wide variety of different styles, which I, I really appreciate that. 
Mm-hmm. Well, going back to like the socialist or the commentary, the political commentary, I, I find that kind of prevalent in a lot of Italian filmmakers. They don't have to be doing horror films. It's just mm-hmm. anybody, you know, <laughs> even Fellini yeah, well, in a certain ex- extent, you know, it's like, uh, exactly. even though his are a little different, but he always has some underlying commentary. It seems like every Italian movie has to have some sort of meaning to it that's what i learned when i went to film class originally <laughs> and well, there was a lot of that i mean there was a lot of turmoil and a lot of uh, unrest in italy especially in the 60s you know between the uh, sort of student uh, rebellions and things like that were going on there was a, there was a strong interest in uh, uh kind of uh, communism and so forth i mean fulci and uh, argeno both kind of aligned themselves with that um you know, even though to an extent it's kind of like uh, having Visconti, who called himself a communist, but at the same time he was a uh, <laughs> he was a nobleman with with you know all this property and all this money and everything else. So it's easy to <laughs> claim to be something when you're living high on the hog. Right. But um, yeah, there was there was a lot of political, very very strong political filmmaking, and, and inevitably most of it very left leaning uh, sort of cinema during that time. Um, one of the reasons that Sergio Leone wasn't taken as seriously for a while as he should have been was that his films weren't particularly political. That's true. And um, when he finally decided to make a political film with a movie called Duck You Sucker, also known as uh, Fistful of Dynamite, um, <laughs> he didn't endear himself to them because he basically made a movie that said, don't get involved. <laughs> so, <laughs> that wasn't what most people wanted to do. You know, you look at like the Damiano Damiani films or Francesca Rossi or Elio Petri and things like that. They, these movies are kind of, you know, the, the working man needs to, uh, you know, uh, be politically involved and fight back against the machine and stand up for yourself and you know, all that sort of thing and here, here's Leone saying you know just just keep your head down it's better that way so yeah. that was uh, very very strong and uh, yeah obviously uh, there's there's a lot of that in Fulci not so much in Bava I don't think Bava no. was really particularly interested in, in political concerns that's true um, my exposure of course to Italian films is probably like everybody else the Clint Eastwood trilogy um, okay. uh, you know as far as you know and uh, you know maybe silly things like Hercules films where they're dubbed and then things like that. Uh, my first exposure to something that was political was something like Rome Open City, you know, and it's like the film instructor was saying, you know, pay attention to this and this symbolism and this and that. And the guy, I'm like, good grief, you know, there's like symbolism in every scene. How do you do a film like that? Uh, well, I think sometimes, you know, I, I, I think academia has its place and I don't want to <laughs> slam people who are, are into it, but I think it's easy sometimes to get a little carried away. I think sometimes some of these things were kind of just in the air in a sense they were kind of um accidental in a way i think it's easy sometimes to get a little i remember listening to a a commentary on um paul morrissey's film blood for dracula which was made in italy um Mm -hmm. uh, for carlo ponti and it's a really wonderful kind of satire of horror films but um he's this commentator who's rather dry starts talking about you know the um the, the symbolism of the girls working in the fields, you know, it's a reference to bitter rice and, and to Nadir Rila, and I'm thinking, uh, you know, maybe it is, but I don't know. We, we don't need to get there. We don't have to turn everything into a polemic. It's uh, when I when I hear some of these um, people, uh, the film theorists who get 
really off on their own fumes, so to speak, um, <laughs> trying to read really, really strong uh, kind of political and social commentary into some of the grubbier, <laughs> scrubbier Italian genre films. I, I admit I kind of roll my eyes, but it's valid. It's just not entirely for me all the time. Right, it's it's just kind of funny, uh, you know. As an aside, you know, when I was in film school in college, uh, yeah, they talked about the symbolism in everything, and uh, it was enough that I was also doing uh, film and television production, and I did a, a comedy sketch show, and I called it "Random Acts of Meaningless Comedy," and I purposely called it that because, you know, there's no meaning behind anything I'm doing. Of course, looking yeah. back on it, whenever I've watched it, this is like 30 years ago, I go, wow. I was really kind of making my own, maybe Sergio Leone type statement, but it was, you know, kind of like that. And I didn't intend that. And it's like, so yes, you can find symbolism and meaning even in a Disney film if you were looking for it. So, you know, so. It's, it's, it could be there. Sometimes it's deliberate. I do believe it's it's definitely there in some films. It's very overt in some films. Um, some films are just meant to be diversions. They're just meant to be entertainments. And uh, it just always it reminds me a little bit, um, sort of keeping with the Italian theme, that uh, Roman Polanski made a, a film in Italy called What? Um, <laughs> and it was it, it was during that period of time. It was uh, after the failure, the commercial failure of Macbeth. Which was a fantastic film, but it didn't do well. Hmm. And it was before he kind of um, came back into the critical pantheon with with Chinatown. Hmm. And he just wanted to make a completely pointless film, and so he did. I don't know if you've ever seen that film or not. I I quite like it, but I understand why a lot of people don't. It is pointless. (laughs) I'm not sure if I've seen that one. I've seen a lot of Polanski films, but I may not. It's a strange film. It's it's basically Alice in Wonderland on on acid. Okay, that's a good way to American tourist who ends up in this villa in Italy um, with Marcello Mastroianni and, and a variety of other characters, and it's just it, it's just you either like it and laugh at it, which I do, or it probably will just you know bore the hell out of you, one or the other. I think it's amusing, but that's an example of what you know a quote-unquote serious filmmaker can go and deliberately make a completely pointless, meaningless film. It's just you know it's meant to be amusing. You either find it amusing or you don't. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Your two more recent books, you mentioned them, but I'll go one at a time. And uh, So Real Depravity is Klaus Kinski. Uh, what attracted you to write a book about him? I mean, he's a very diverse actor, very strange actor sometimes, but uh, give me your take on him. <laughs> well, I suppose I first became aware of Kinski as a child um, from for a few dollars more where he plays the hunchback uh, Lee Van Cleef strikes the match on his neck and I remembered him from that I remembered seeing him as Renfield and Jess Franco's version of Dracula with Christopher Lee um, I had seen the stills of him as Nosferatu although I didn't see the film until years later and I, I saw a film with him and Oliver Reed and Sterling Hayden called uh, Venom Hmm. on TV when I was a kid, which is a movie I'm extremely fond of that most people don't seem to like, and I don't know why. I think it's a really good movie, but um, I, I had, you know, obviously written uh, a couple of books on directors. I'd written a, a couple of books on sort of, you know, genre in general, and I thought it might be interesting to tackle an actor, and I thought about the different actors that I like, and 
you know, the world doesn't need another book on Boris Karloff at this point. There's been so <laughs> uh-huh. many. And, yeah. uh, I, I love Boris Karloff. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Somebody could write a really interesting, fresh take on it. I'd love that. Same with Peter Cushing. If somebody wanted to write a good, objective biography that didn't cram the idea that the man was a saint down our throats, I'd love to read it. <laughs> he was a complicated human being, uh, if you know much about Peter Cushing, he wasn't a saint. He he had his flaws like the rest of us did, and I'd love to see a biography that, that honestly dealt with that. Mm-hmm. Um, Christopher Lee's my favorite actor, but you know Jonathan Rigby wrote a book on him, which I you know I couldn't touch that, so I'm not yeah. going to try to do that. And I, got, I was just sort of thinking about different people. When Kinski showed up in, in my mind, and I thought, you know, there hasn't been a book in English that really just dealt with him as an actor. Mm-hmm. Everything that's out there kind of deals with him being a lunatic, which he was. <laughs> um, he, he did, in fact, in in the fifties, he ended up in a uh, sanitarium in uh, Germany for a period of time uh, after, a, I believe, a suicide attempt, and he was diagnosed as being schizophrenic. Mm. So he he had problems. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We've all heard the stories. We've all heard the stories about what an epic shit he could be and everything else. But um, <laughs> there's also the fact that he was a great actor. And I wanted to do a book that said, let's just forget about all the crazy Klaus stories for a moment. We'll talk about them briefly, but let's talk about the guy's talent. And uh, so that's why I wrote Real Depravity. So it was just basically to give a sense of a very diverse career. Uh, this was a man who likened himself to a whore. He said, I will do anything for money. If you pay me enough money, I'll do it. So um, I mentioned before uh, the movie Venom. He did that movie sooner than do Raiders of the Lost Ark because they offered him more money. So Mm. there you go. (laughs) Was it a good move or not? I don't know. But I actually really like Venom, so I'm okay with it. Yeah. And to listeners out here, this is not the current film that's also called Venom. It's a completely different film. Yes, that's That's very true. Um, Let's see. Uh, Yeah, my first exposure that I knowingly knew Klaus Kinski you mentioned is is Nosferatu. It was when it came out, and for me, I was like, I didn't know. I mean, I guess I did know there was a silent version, but I hadn't seen it at that time. Uh, My first exposure to Dracula was, of course, Bela Lugosi. So I like. What is this? <laughs> so, um, and I had forgotten until you just said so that he was in uh, for a few dollars more. So I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. He's in that. Uh, so, uh, but I don't think he got much uh, notoriety until Nosferatu. Is that correct? Well, uh, up until uh, he started working with Herzog in 1972 on uh, Aguirre, The Wrath of God, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, um, he was well-known in the European film scene, especially in Germany and Italy and so forth. He was a name over there, but he hadn't quite made it as a name over uh, in the U.S., for example, although he had been in some big films. He was in Dr. Zhivago, for example, a small part, but a very memorable part. Uh, He gets to share a scene on the train with... uh, Ralph Richardson and some other big names, uh, you know, and um, uh, he he was constantly working. Like Christopher Lee, he was an actor who managed to make a ton of movies because his roles were typically rather small. Mm-hmm. Um, so therefore, he wasn't wasted, you know, wasting a lot of time on lengthy movie shoots he typically would film for a week or two and then he would go on to the next project and that's how you rack up a lot of credits christopher lee did that a lot donald pleasance did that a lot john carradine did that a lot um so he i think he really found his art house credibility with working with Werner herzog although their relationship was certainly very uh antagonistic to say the least but they brought out the best in each other yeah, i was gonna say something that brings out a good thing <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, you know, they made f what five films together, and obviously, uh, they both threatened to kill each other on more than one occasion. But uh, hmm. you know, um, Herzog always said, "What matters is what's on the screen. It doesn't matter about the drama behind the scenes. It's, it just matters what's on screen." And he knew Kinski was good, um, and obviously, he was the perfect casting for Nosferatu, which was not um, a particularly big success commercially when it came out. Although it was well reviewed, it didn't do as well as uh, I think they were hoping um, right around that time. Of course, you have also had the Universal remake of Dracula with Frank Langella and Lawrence mm -hmm. Olivier. And then I think the one that did the best of all was Love at First Bite with yeah. uh, George Hamilton. So. Well, I saw all three in the theater when they came out. And so, yes, very, ah, very I would have loved to have seen them in the theater. Yeah. I, I saw them on video, but uh, I love all three in their own yeah. way. But yeah, Love at First Bite was the, uh, the disco Dracula everybody wanted. <laughs> Um, I, I think actually, now that I'm thinking about it, is that uh, probably uh, Klaus's daughter Natasha made a bigger impact on U.S. audiences first with things like uh, uh, Tess and uh, a couple other films. Uh, is that okay, well, Dust uh, and Natasha, yeah, Tess was uh, was a big deal. Of course, I mean and that's, that's a Blansky film too. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was after his uh, unfortunate uh, experiences, which we don't need to get into all of that. But right. uh, <laughs> that was his first film after the big sex scandal, and uh, despite it all, it was it was tremendously successful and was nominated for several Oscars. It's a beautiful film, and yeah. it, it proved that she was a very good actress. Also proves that uh, really creepy looking men. Like like Klaus Kinski and indeed Dario Argento can produce really beautiful daughters. Yes, and in fact, you know, I didn't see Tess when it first came out, but um, it, it was probably Time Magazine, my dad subscribed forever, uh, that, uh, you know, talked about her, and I said, wow, she's very beautiful. And then, like I said, I saw uh, Nosferatu, not knowing that her dad was anybody, you know, and yeah. I go, ew. <laughs> yeah. He's kind of a creepy guy, yeah. and not in Nosferatu makeup, just... Period. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like... yeah, well, they didn't. I mean, you know, obviously they shaved his head and gave him the fangs and everything. But I mean, <laughs> realistically, he was, he was. But he, you know, it's funny. I've talked to women who think that he was extraordinarily sexy, and I don't understand it. Well, women don't but, always go on looks; they go on personalities. I, I, yeah, I, I, there's <laughs> got to be partly that. And he certainly, his autobiography, which um, was originally called "All I Need Is Love," and then it was released uh, in a cut version, ironically called. Kinski uncut. Uh, they cut it because he made so many sort of slanderous and libelous <laughs> comments in it. Uh, they had to change names and, and everything else. Um, he talks extensively. I mean, the book is sex-obsessed. I mean, and, and, and even if we go on the assumption that most of it probably isn't true, uh, Klaus certainly got around a good bit. So, you know, he had that bad boy thing going, I guess, which appealed to a lot of women. Yeah. <laughs> now, did you, in the making of that book, did you reach out to Natasha at all, or no? Was it important? No. No, no. I important. decided early on. There's a variety of reasons for that. Obviously, there's been some horrible uh, allegations made down through the years by by Kinski's children uh, with regards to him and and his behavior and everything else. So, didn't really want to go down that road. Um, I didn't really want to get into kind of uh, character assassination or right. ruminating on something that I don't know if it's true or not. Yeah. It could be true. It may not be true. Uh, Kinski liked to shock people and upset people and sometimes he would say something like you know I fucked my daughter yeah. well you don't just go around and say that to people but did he did he say it just to upset people or did he 
I don't know. I really don't know. So didn't want to go down those roads. I yeah. thought, yeah, I'll just limit myself to the movies. So I didn't yeah. really need to. The only person I did reach out to was the actress Maria Rome. Mm -hmm. who unfortunately has since passed away. Um, she wrote a foreword for the book, okay. and uh, she answered some questions for me, and she uh, she spoke very well with him, but, um, you know, she, she talked about his autobiography and said that uh, he made an allegation in there that he and uh, her and another actress had a threesome together, and she said that just wasn't true. You know, she was <laughs> upset about him saying that, but she decided later on, well, that's just Klaus, and, you know, I'm just going to have to accept it and move on with my life, which she did. Yeah, it sounds like in your writing you tend to take the high road like i tend to do i don't like to do what i call the warts and all you know it, unless it's critical to the story uh there's no point in saying you know that someone's a child molester or somebody who is a pedophile or whatever or you know robbed a bank even or anything like that unless it's critical to saying well this stopped his career because of this you know but even then yeah, to go into I, excessive detail about it you know <laughs> i think i think there's there's a difference i mean it depends if if you're writing a biography on something what what I was writing wasn't a biography. It was a, uh, uh, a sort of critical look at his work as an actor. Yeah. It was designed to be about the films. If I were writing a biography, that'd be different. That's where you do kind of want to wrestle with that a little bit. And, and sometimes that's when you're forced to acknowledge the fact that the people you admire, you know, again, they have their flaws. And right. it, it's not necessarily a bad thing to mention it and to say, well, you know, this happened and that happened. That's unfortunate. But you know, I don't think it's really our place to sit there and sort of pass moral judgment. But uh, if you're going to write a biography, something that's really geared towards being an honest biography, then, you know, yeah, you do kind of want to acknowledge the uh, the bad stuff along with right. the good. But in this case, I decided early on that, you know what, it's just not not really germane to the subject. Probably for the best. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, the next book you have here, The Human Beast, Paul Nashi. Um, I know the name, but uh, familiarize me with the him. <laughs> well, Paul Nashi was basically the Spanish Lon Chaney. Um, okay. Okay. He was... Uh, somebody who became obsessed with horror films as a child when he saw Frankenstein meets the Wolfman when he was just uh, a little boy and uh, basically that movie made a huge impression on him and uh, he, you know he's an interesting character in a sense that you know he, he was uh, he was also an athlete and he was a uh, he was a weightlifter he's a champion weightlifter and uh, you know so he, you're dealing with this big imposing burly guy who is uh, uh, you know, going into weightlifting competitions and, and things like that. But he's also interested in writing, so he wrote some sort of pulp novels under uh, an alias, uh, especially westerns and things like that, and uh, gradually worked his way into making movies. And in the early 60s, there was that big boom in sort of international co-productions. A lot of Hollywood movies were shooting in Spain because they had great resources, and let's be honest, it was cheaper. So you had, like, uh, King of Kings and all these sort of biblical movies movies going on uh, being shot in uh, Spain and big strapping guys like Paul Nashi were good to play background parts and so that's how he got started um, but unlike every single other actor who's become associated with horror films uh, many of them struggled with that mightily uh, many of them weren't thrilled about it uh, but uh, Paul Nashi actually actively sought to become known for doing horror films he wrote his own films mm. under his uh, birth name of Jacinto Molina 
Um, he ended up becoming a producer, and he directed quite a few of them later on, too, under his, his uh, birth name. But as an actor, he became known as Paul Nashi, and he was especially well-known for playing a character he created called uh, Waldemar Daninsky, who was a Polish nobleman who you know, gets bitten by the werewolf, and you know how that goes. So <laughs> he did a whole series of movies playing Waldemar Daninsky. Um, he played Dracula. He played uh, Jekyll and Hyde. He played uh, the Mummy. He did, you know, just about all of the major horror characters at one point or another. And uh, uh, just a very, very interesting guy. Somebody who really had a tremendous love of the genre. And he's another one whose films were damaged for many years because we would get them over here typically on tv and they'd be badly dubbed into english mm -hmm. um cut and shown in bad prints but here again nowadays we can see a lot of them in better quality uh with the original spanish soundtracks and uh they come across that much better um just a, a really uh, rich body of work that he left behind both as an actor but also as a writer and director so yeah that was going to be my next question i mean is his stuff readily available now or is there a big chunk still missing or on, on the home video market progress is being made and okay. within the last uh, couple of years fortunately there's been a big upswing and and i've been fortunate enough to have been asked to participate in in some of them doing commentaries and so forth uh mondo macabro has put out uh, a couple of his films that he starred in and directed uh, he did a, a sort of witch finder uh general type thing uh, mm -hmm. called inquisition which deals with the uh the french rather than the spanish inquisition uh that movie's available and uh, a movie called the devil incarnate uh which uh, basically is dealing with the idea of the devil taking human form and coming up to cause some mischief only to discover that man is a lot worse than he is <laughs> and uh i did the commentary for that release which i think is a, a truly great film um shout factories put out a couple of box sets of his movies mm. there's some more coming from uh, scorpion so yeah uh, a good chunk of his stuff is available there's still a good chunk left to go though and hopefully somebody at some point will start putting them out and again the same question i asked about the other ones i mean the the films that aren't really readily available have you had access to them or are there things you have not seen uh, with regards to Nashi, well, I'll say the same thing about Kinski. With Kinski, there were actually a couple that, of things that I wasn't able to see because um, they don't appear to exist anymore, unfortunately. Mm. But uh, Nashi-wise, yes, I was able to get a hold of pretty much everything. The exception would be some uh, sort of Spanish TV things that he did and, and a few sort of uh, short subject things that just I was unable to find. But fortunately, I was able to get all the feature films and and i'm happy to say that at this point uh with the exception of maybe one or two films all of the films are available through the gray market circuit at the very least with english subtitles so mm -hmm. the subtitles may sometimes be a little wonky but it's enough to give you an idea of what's going on right and uh i think uh, you might have said but i mean how did, how did you come across him was it the, again the late night uh uh movie shows and things like that or yeah, funnily enough, uh, again, Commander USA, and uh, USA also had in the 80s a thing called Saturday Nightmares, and they used to run 
a bunch of uh, especially Spanish imports that were from uh, imported to the U.S. by a company called Independent International, and they were kind of the uh, bottom of the barrel uh, equivalent to American International. I mean, American International had Vincent Price and Basil Rathbone and people like that. Independent International had Lon Chaney Jr. when he was about ready to die, and uh, it, they made the work like Al Adamson movies, just the really worst of the worst movies. But they imported a bunch of really good Spanish horror films, okay. and uh, that included some Paul Nashy things like uh, Night of the Howling Beast, um, which is one of his Voldemar Daninsky movies. And uh, I remember seeing those on TV as a kid. Again, didn't really understand uh, the notion of them being foreign movies and certainly didn't know who the hell he was. Mm-hmm. But uh, then later on in the 80s, uh, I became better aware thanks to resources like Fangoria and uh, a great book that I just absolutely devoured as, as a kid uh, called the Encyclopedia of Horror Films, which really you know was a big eye opener for me. Mm-hmm. Um, how do they compare? Uh, you know, now that you're talking about it, I may have seen them, but not knowingly. Uh, but how do how do you feel the the Spanish films compare to the Italian films? There are similarities, but they're also different. These Spanish films tend to be a little bit rougher around the edges. Um, they tend, unfortunately, sometimes to have more overt misogyny in them. Uh, it's, it was a peculiar thing that during the reign of uh, Francisco Franco, uh, you know, don't forget Generalissimo Franco is still dead. Yes. <laughs> um, he was very much opposed to... Um, love scenes in films but he didn't seem to have a problem with rape scenes and so you get things like the Blind Dead movies uh, which you may have heard of where there's in almost all of them there's the uh, inevitable rape scene where the woman ends up enjoying what's going on <laughs> the, the, the scenes like that are problematic nowadays to say yeah. the least this was Nashi um, having problems with it or uh, oh no that uh, was Francisco or Franco. Franco okay I just no, want to clear no, it up Nashi, okay. No. Okay. Nashi, okay. <laughs> once, once the censorship changed after Franco died uh, you know that kind of thing changed, but during that early part of the '70s, when Franco was still in charge, they weren't allowed to do certain things. And okay. uh, for whatever strange reason, they weren't keen on the idea of love scenes. But you know, scenes hmm. of uh, sexual abuse—that <laughs> was okay. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, kind of a kind of a strange way of thinking, but I probably sort of ties into the sort of misogyny and whatnot that was that was typical in, in Spanish culture during that time. Um, they're they're similar in the sense that they are uh, also very heavy on atmosphere and uh, sometimes a little bit weak on narrative, but uh, I'd say a little bit rougher around the edges than the Italian films. And, and oddly enough, um, although Spanish's language is closer to English uh, than Italian is, the quality of the Spanish dubs weren't as good, or I should say the English dubs on Spanish films weren't as good as the uh, quality on the Italian dubs, which I guess was just down to the availability of the the vocal talents and so forth that were employed. Uh, The people that were working out of Rome were just better, I suppose, (laughs) than than the ones that were uh, stations in Spain. Mm -hmm. Now, were there any other prominent... Uh, people in Spain uh, besides Nashi that you may or may not have covered at this point I mean but uh, that you can alert us to well, no, there's no. He's the only one that I've dealt with in terms of Spanish horror, okay. and uh, um, I mean, certainly there were other 
filmmakers who were instrumental in kind of creating a Spanish horror film. That that was one of the things, too, about Nashi. Basically, before people like Nashi and another director named Amando de Osorio, who did the uh, Tombs of the Blind Dead movies, mm-hmm. before they started dabbling in, in horror films, there really weren't Spanish horror films because, again, Francisco Franco didn't like them. <laughs> um, they weren't encouraged to be made. So the, the Hammer movies and things like that were imported sometimes, and they did well. Mm-hmm. But they nobody wanted to take a chance on making them. And uh, it was De Osorio and Nashi who decided they were going to take a chance on making some, and they were commercially successful. One of the things they had to be mindful of, though, was the censorship, and so one of the things that they had to make do with was the fact that Francisco Franco would turn a blind eye to the idea of horror films being made in Spain, but they must never ever be set in Spain. Mm. So the Waldemar Daninsky character, for example, is a, is a Polish nobleman because... Uh, uh, Franco would not have it that it would be a Spaniard. <laughs> it was just you know no way. So make you know those the, the Spanish films are typically set in Germany, in France, uh, in England, you know, in Scotland, wherever, but anywhere but Spain. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's like the only exposure I've heard of uh, Franco uh, in regards to film was when I did interviews in regards to De Patty Freeling. Uh, some of their films were outsourced too. Uh, it's called Peg Bar Productions, but uh, they said, yeah, they'd have to run them past Franco, but they're cartoons, they're made for kids. Generally, they passed without issue, so uh, they were generally left alone. So, But this is the, you know, the first I've heard of any overt censorship, you know, in regards to, like, horror oh, yeah. films or anything like that, you know? Oh, yeah, well, it was a big thing. Even uh, Bava made a film in, uh, in Spain called Hatch of Her Honeymoon, and it was an Italian-Spanish co-production, but the uh, the location, the big location of the fashion house that you see in the film was actually Francisco Franco's villa. Mm. And uh, Bava told a story about, you know, I think they asked him why why was there so little blood in that movie, and he said, well, we were shooting in Franco's villa, and if we got blood on the carpets, we probably would have been shot. So <laughs> they had to be careful of that wow. sort of thing. After Franco died, uh, Nashi and other filmmakers too, but Nashi made some films that absolutely would have gotten and put in jail, maybe even executed, uh, if they had been made during Franco's reign. He made a film called The Sniper, for example, which is all about a plot to kill Francisco Franco. Oops. <laughs> uh, he made a movie called uh, The Transsexual, which dealt with the kind of uh, gay scene in, in uh, Spain and the kind of, you know, transsexual community. I mean, these are things that no way in hell, if they'd been made a couple years before, would <laughs> they ever seen the light of day. And chances are he would have been put in jail for them. Wow. Now, was there a requirement by Franco or anyone else that they had to shoot these films, or uh, you said not set them, but shoot them in Spain, or uh, were they free to go abroad or anything with anything? Well, they would shoot, typically they were shot largely in Spain. Uh, interiors would have been done in sound stages and so forth, but usually to sell the illusion that they were set in England, for example, they would go over for a week and uh, go around Soho or something okay. like that. So they have something like Dr. Jekyll and the Werewolf where you have um, uh, Paul Nashi done up as Mr. Hyde in his opera cape and top hat walking down the streets of Soho, uh, which is just delightfully surreal and strange. But uh, <laughs> that sort of thing they would do. But uh, very often it was more a matter of just, you know, 
it, it would it would be sometimes really obvious that it's Spain, but you know everybody's talking about it like, a, oh, we're out here in Heidelberg or whatever. So it's <laughs> it's like, you know, they knew what they were doing, but at the same time they were appeasing Franco by doing things like that. Right. Okay. I was just curious, you know, how strict they were in other ways. You know, it's like it sounds like they did have a little freedom to move about, but you know, a little general, bit. I yeah. mean, they had to be careful too with sex because, like I said before, they had some rather strange opinions about that, but they were very um, anything that was erotic, they would shoot in two takes. So the Nashi films exist usually in, in two different versions. There's a version where uh, the girl's wearing a nightgown, and there's a version where she's naked. Mm. Um, you know, take your pick, which one you want to watch. But nowadays you can pick. But uh, <laughs> the, the export versions were typically, you know, would be shown in England and America. Some of these movies did play in American theaters. Some of them went straight to TV. Mm. Um, Avco put a, a, a package of them together in the 70s, for example. They had a bunch of Nashi movies um, that went straight to TV. But yeah, they would they would do two different versions because in the Spanish market, they would not accept, um, you know, any kind of nudity whatsoever. Hmm. Interesting that they would allow them to shoot the nudity for uh, yeah. export version. <laughs> I guess yeah. they didn't mind. mind. Yeah, well, I, the, the British did the same thing to a certain extent in the 50s, late 50s, when Hammer was in full swing. Um, sometimes they would do stronger takes for the export. Uh, they would say it was the Japanese version or whatever. But uh, uh, in fact, there was some truth to that. There were some scenes. Uh, apparently, there were um, uh, takes in The Mummy uh, with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing where the uh, during the Egyptian flashback sequence the uh, the handmaidens were shown bare-breasted in mm-hmm. in a, a alternate take but i've never seen such footage but apparently it was shot that way at least that's the story hmm. but it's, it is interesting you're saying that that uh, it's like in both cases the milder version is the uh, version that's home-based and then for export it's always the, yeah yeah, but of course, I guess the uh, you know the milder version would have ended up in Spain had they shown it there. I'm sure the money, um, the mummy, or something like that. Oh yeah, well absolutely. Yeah, they, so. they were they were pretty they were pretty uh, prudish when it came to that aspect. You know, my first exposure to anything being different like that was probably on Monty Python, where they do the skit about the man with three buttocks. And uh, they said, didn't we just do this skit? And he goes, well, I thought this was the continental version. Yes. And uh, I said, yeah. what does that mean? And then I figured it out. I, you know, I did a little research. I got, yeah, they do, you know, British versions and then ones for the European continent. Oh, I get yep. it. Okay. <laughs> um, so it was a little, you know, mention of that. Um, at this point, um, you've done all these. Did I cover all the books that you've done to, to date? Um, the only other one that I can think of that we didn't touch on, uh, I'm working with uh, another writer named Chris Workman. Uh, we've done a, a couple of volumes in our own sort of encyclopedia of horror film series called The Tome of Terror. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also through Midnight Marquee. We have two volumes out so far. One covers 1895 to 1929. Mm-hmm. The second volume covers the 30s. And uh, we have hopefully next year, hopefully, fingers crossed, the 1940s volume will come out. 
are you just taking that series decade by decade after this, or is it even going to be like you'll have to do half a decade because of how many horror films are made? Well, it depends on the decade, certainly. I think the 40s and 50s will be okay, but when we get to the 60s and 70s, it'll almost have to be uh, split into two volumes at least, I would think, because, my God, there's so, <laughs> so many of them. Uh, I almost don't even want to think about that because it's going to be a lot of dreck I'm going to have to sit through, but we'll, we'll get there eventually. But, yeah. yes, it, it's supposed to be decade by decade. And uh, you know, going back to the first volume, so you said 1895 to 1929, is that the correct Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. Um, you better believe there's a a lot of movies in there that we could not watch. Yes, that was my question. I was going to say, I know things like London After Midnight, I always think of that, but yeah. you know, uh, do you, uh, just because of, you know, press releases or other scripts or whatever, uh, did you, do you think you've gotten the majority of what probably existed, or do you think that there's totally tons of horror-based films from that period that just there's no well, record th- of at this point. I think we have got rounded up as much as anybody ever has. Um, I am always a little bit resistant to that word definitive because <laughs> I don't want to be thinking of myself as the last word on anything. Right. Um, I, I think that we put together as much as anybody ever has. We'll just put it that way. Possibly there's material that will turn up years from now that'll say, oh, there was this obscure movie in Bulgaria that dealt with werewolves. So I'll, you know what, we didn't know about that, so sue me. There's so much <laughs> I can say. Uh, there's a ton of movies, unfortunately, from that period of time that, that nobody's ever going to get a chance to see. But you know, every now and again you hear about something weird, like uh, they uncovered a bunch of old Doctor Who episodes, for example, in right. somebody's you know basement or whatever. So you never know. Maybe someday we will get a chance to see some of these films, although um, everybody who did see London After Midnight uh, seems to be in agreement that it wasn't all that good. I'd love to see it anyway. The big movie that's lost that I'd love to see uh, was actually a uh, version of Jekyll and Hyde by F.W. Murnau called Der Janiskopf, which starred Conrad Veidt and Bela Lugosi. I'd love to see that. I think I've heard of that. I didn't know that was a missing one, but you know... uh, (laughs) Wow, you know, yeah, that sounds interesting based on just those two actors alone, so... Um... Yeah, during the course of doing that book, did anything come available that you could actually view at that point? I was always curious about, you know... Um, I mean, I suppose, I I mean, I know I ended up seeing a bunch of films I hadn't seen before. Uh, Probably, frankly, I hadn't gone out of my way to try and track them down. Um, For many years, I have to admit, silent cinema wasn't my kind of go-to because I had a hard time with it. But uh, over time, I've become very fond of it, and I'm a big fan of them now. But um, I remember seeing, I think the very first silent movie I ever saw was The Phantom of the Opera with Lon Chaney. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was so excited to find a copy of it on video one time and I asked my mom to buy it for me and she said it's a silent movie I didn't know what she meant by that (laughs) so I got it home and I turned it on and yeah people were moving their mouths and nothing's coming out you know what's that all about (laughs) it it, it was off-putting for me for a while but I I came to like them Mm -hmm. Um, I like them very much now I mean certainly you know uh, Murnau and Fritz Lang and people like that during that time frame were doing incredibly innovative work and uh, um, the introduction of sound in some respects was a big step backwards for a lot of filmmakers because it it really encumbered them Uh, you look at some of the things that uh, uh, that Murnau 
was doing, for example, with the moving camera and things like that. Oh my right. God, they were just they were way ahead of the curve. Right, and I, I was learning in recent times, thanks to the um, Criterion Chaplin and Harold Lloyd films. There's a documentary on one of them. I don't know which one, but they're talking about how Chaplin and Lloyd were both frustrated when sound came in because they couldn't change the uh, film speed anymore to make something yes. funnier. Uh, they had to be totally a slave to uh, the dialogue and had to shoot everything in real time. And it's like, you know, I don't know, did that, was there a problem with that, it, to your knowledge, with horror films? It seems like everything was, was shot in real time pretty much. Well, as far as film speed, yeah, no, I don't think. I mean, for years, a lot of the silent films were shown at the wrong speed, which gave them a jerkiness that wasn't intended. Yeah. Uh, when I first saw Murnau's Nosferatu, it was like that. And, and nowadays, you can watch a really gorgeous version available on Blu-ray, which has it at the right speed and uh, with the appropriate tinting and everything. And, and it, it just plays so much better that way. In in the early 30s, I know a film like uh, Todd Browning's Dracula with Bela Lugosi, um, Arguably, that suffered a little bit from that kind of initial unease with using sound and, and music and so forth. And uh, it comes across as a little bit stagey, whereas James Whale during that time with Frankenstein and the old Dark House and so forth was really... Um, again way ahead of the curve and doing a lot of interesting things with uh, camera and with sound uh, even if, even though Frankenstein and the old dark house aren't scored films they don't have music playing over their exciting scenes and things like that right. his use of sound was very good so you don't you don't really miss the miss the soundtrack uh, you know the music uh, in in those cases mm-hmm. well um i guess that's about everything to talk about is there anything i mean uh, is are there any books you, you mentioned john carpenter but are there any other people you'd like to write a book about or anything like that um yeah i mean carpenter's gonna happen one day i feel sure it's gonna happen one day mm-hmm. um i i'm a big fan of his i have been ever since i was a child he was mm-hmm. one of the first directors i was ever aware of largely because his name's always above the title so obviously that's a big giveaway but i was aware of him and hitchcock from you know very early age um yeah he it, that will happen one day uh there are other people that i toy with the idea with every now and again but i'm not really particularly settled on anybody else right now mm-hmm. but it does sound like from what we've talked about you, you tend to like to pick as do i uh, a subject or a person uh that hasn't been covered to death so it wouldn't be a Karloff book say coming out from you anytime soon you know no no I mean as much as I love Hammer we talked about Hammer briefly I mean I I don't I I don't want to say that the world doesn't need any more Hammer books because you know anybody who wants to put the effort to it if they can write something fresh and interesting then that's good um i have seen so many books on hammer and so many of them aren't very good and but the ones that are good are very very good um, yeah. especially some of the books that have come out of the uk that are really really exceptionally well researched and well written i don't think i can add anything to that so i don't think i'll be doing anything on hammer anytime soon but mm-hmm. uh yeah you know there are certain topics um Karloff and lugosi obviously are actors who've been you know, so many books have been written. Uh, Lugosi has actually been written about very, very well, and uh, every facet, I swear, <laughs> every facet of the man's life and career has been covered. Karloff, not as much. Most mm. of the Karloff books have been very, you know, along the lines of what I was saying before about the Peter Cushing books. They've been sort of hero-worshipping type books, which no. is, is fine up to a point. But I can't help but wonder if there's a more interesting story in there that hasn't been told. I have to ask Sarah, I suppose. <laughs> 
Um, and then a couple other people you mentioned over the course of the interview is like uh, Dario Argento booking that, planning there, do you think? Yes, I'm working on that okay. right now. Okay. As a matter of fact, I just uh, sort of settled on what I'm going to call it. It's uh, going to be called Murder by Design, mm-hmm. the unsane cinema of Dario Argento. I have to give a shout out to Vincent Pereira for um, suggesting the use of... Uh, the unsane cinema of Dario Argento because the uh, American version of his movie Tenebrae was released over here as unsane. It just mm. seemed to make sense. It fits together <laughs> nicely. So I'm working on that now, and uh, that will not be out. Uh, well, I was going to say this year. This year is almost done. That would be impossible. <laughs> I'm hoping it will be out in 2020. Okay. And I do hope you at least get some contact with him if not a full interview and i know you said you got one some other way but uh you know oh yeah uh, yeah we have an interview with him we okay. have an interview with uh, one of his daughters um we have a bunch of interviews for the book which is okay. really good i'd really love good. to meet him someday though in person yeah that's what i kind of meant yeah <laughs> and uh yeah you mentioned werner herzog do you think that would be a, a subject of a book in the future or <laughs> well, that would be interesting. I, I think, um, you know, if I met him, I would probably just be hypnotized by listening to him talk because <laughs> he has the most wonderful voice, and uh, <laughs> I, that would be a, that would be interesting. I don't know if I could handle being on the phone talking with Werner Herzog, but I, I'd love to <laughs> love to try it someday. All right. Well, very good. Uh, anything else you'd like to plug? A website or anything else uh, before we go? No, don't have any websites. I, you know, in addition to the books, do a lot of audio commentary work. So, you know, you can anybody who feels uh, interested uh, can always uh, seek out some of the things that I've done in that capacity too. Okay, and this is the best place to get your books on Amazon or Midnight Marquee or both, or what's the best way? Uh, either of those ways is fine. Amazon is is good. Um, you know, um, I probably end up getting a little bit more money if people order from Midnight Marquee. So go with them instead. All right, sounds good. Okay, well, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. I learned a lot. You know, it's like I knew about uh, these types of films, but always interested in learning more about horror movies. Uh, yes. And I want to thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Okay, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for, again for listening. Thank you again, Joy Horworth, for being my special guest. Episode number 18 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a Patreon of Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2019 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you very much, and have a good night.